Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Eddie Trunk Podcast, which is new every Thursday via podcastone.com and, of course, Apple Podcasts. Thank you for checking it out all around the world. Hear from all you guys all the time that enjoy the podcast. It's greatly appreciated. And as I tell everybody all the time, if you like the podcast and you live in the U.S. or Canada, by all means, please join me every single day and listen on Sirius XM channel 106 volume doing my daily rock talk show trunk nation with interviews commentary phone calls and so much more if you don't have Sirius XM and you're in the US or Canada my god come on people for the cost of a couple of Starbucks you could have a month's worth of endless entertainment on demand live App, sports, talk, music, this show, so much going on. You are getting a tiny taste here on the podcast of what I do every day live on Sirius XM Volume. So hope you come on board and all the interviews that you hear on this podcast originated on Trunk Nation on Volume. Just came off of a crazy run. That started with Exit 111 in Tennessee, which I hosted, massive three-day rock fest, segued into the Megadeth cruise, which sadly Dave Mustaine was not on and could not attend for obvious reasons, given his health situation, and then rolled into hosting a show with Last in Line, which was this past Saturday in Tulsa at the IDL Ballroom. So, so much going on. It's been a nutty, crazy, busy run, and that run continues on the very day you're hearing this radio show, because on this post day of Thursday, which would be the 24th day of October, uh, I am getting uh, ready to broadcast tonight live from the Rainbow in Los Angeles, back to the West Coast, where I will be doing my monthly live show from the Rainbow, Trunk Nation, with my guest Kim Thale from Soundgarden. And that's going down tonight. If you happen to be in Southern California, it's free to attend. 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific on the Rainbow Patio. And everybody else, you can, of course, tune in and listen live on Volume Sirius XM Channel 106. Going to be fun to be back at the Rainbow and fun to be resuming our monthly broadcast from the patio of the Rainbow Bar and Grill 
and should be a fun one tonight on Thursday. So be sure to check it out. Be sure to listen. If you're in Southern California, come by and say hello. So more about all those things I just did um, in a nutshell. And look, I I gave really in-depth breakdowns of all of this stuff on the radio shows so I'm not going to get overly involved in rehashing it here. But in a nutshell, Exit 111, amazing lineup, great event, an honor to host. I don't think they had the amount of people there they were hoping for. I do hope it continues. I don't know if they will continue it or not. We have so many rock festivals and music festivals now in America. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this thing going forward. But it was a great event. And I had a great time, and it was certainly well attended, but when you got talent, the level of the talent they had on that bill, you've got to hit certain numbers in terms of people, and I don't think they came close to what they wanted. But that being said, uh, a very, very cool company and reputable company did it, and they certainly have the resources to do it again if they want to. We'll keep an eye on that and see if it's a one-and-done deal or if they decide to continue with uh, continue doing it, which I certainly hope they do. But thanks to everybody that I met at Exit 111, all the great fans and all the great bands. Megadeth Cruise, like I said, Dave couldn't be on it. I think everybody still had a great time. The weather was great. All the bands that did play were great. I had a blast on it. It's awesome to be on all those cruises. And last in line on... Um, in Tulsa, just killer. I went from seeing Vivian Campbell on one Saturday headlining at with Def Leppard at Exit 111 and exactly a week later playing a club in Tulsa with Last in Line to a few hundred people. And having a great time doing both. I give Viv a lot of credit for that, and his band Last in Line is really, really good. So be sure to check that out. Lot going on. At Eddie Trunk on Twitter, where I am most active. Instagram, at Eddie Trunk. There's a fan page on Facebook, at Eddie Trunk. And, of course, eddietrunk.com is the official online home. Before we get to this week's podcast interview, let me tell you about Pluto TV because they are the leading streaming service. Free. Free. That's a big word I left out there. Pluto TV is the leading free streaming television service. What can you do with Pluto? Well, you can watch over 100 TV channels thousands of movies on demand completely free there's the word again free pluto tv never even asks for a credit card you don't even need to sign up to watch for free pluto tv is the easy and completely legal that's an important word too legal way to watch your favorite tv shows and hit movies for free what are you waiting for never pay for tv again by downloading pluto tv you can download pluto tv for free on all of your favorite devices today including your phone Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, Smart TVs, PlayStation, and anywhere else you stream. So the interview for you this week is one that was done, I don't know, six, eight weeks ago in my studio in Los Angeles for SiriusXM. Let me tell you how this happened. I do these monthly broadcasts from the rainbow. And I don't know, maybe three months ago, the broadcast was George Lynch and Don Dockin together. Don sends me a text on his way over to the Rainbow broadcast and says to me, hey, by the way, I'm bringing with me Holly Knight. She'll be in the audience. 
And I said, really, I'd love to meet her. And for those that don't know, of course, Holly, you're going to hear from in a second here on this podcast, but Holly Knight is a very accomplished songwriter. Now, I have always had a real fascination and appreciation for songwriting and the talent of songwriting. I've often said there are a million great musicians in the world, but we don't have a ton of great songwriters. That's a whole different level. And I've always been enamored and fascinated with the ability to create songs that last forever and that become part of people's lives and become pop culture, become woven into the fabric of everyday listening. And I'm always amazed at at the artist's ability to create those songs and write that material. And a lot of those artists who write songs for others live in anonymity. They're not well-known. They don't seek the spotlight. They don't want the attention. They don't want the photos, the autographs. They just like to write songs. And quite frankly, they make the lion's share of the money if you write the songs. But they're the people behind the songs that have become so woven into your lives. And look, there's a lot of rock guys, the majority of rock guys, who do write their own material or co-write it at least. And then there are others that work with song doctors or outside writers. So I was excited to meet Holly as a fan of songwriters and being so interested in that process. And she came with Don to the uh, to the broadcast, and I met her briefly and said hello to her on the air briefly. And then we exchanged information at the end, and I said, hey, you know, if you've got some time, I'd love to have you on and really get your story. And she said, yeah. And uh, I guess it was a few weeks later, I was back in L.A. where she lives. She's originally from New York. And she came into the studio, and I think we had about an hour scheduled. And as you're about to hear, I could have easily done more time with her. And we will again somewhere in the near future. But she has written... And, you know, we'll get into this when you hear the interview, but she's written so many very, very popular songs or co-written, I should say, and a lot in the rock space and some in the pop area and different worlds of music, as most songwriters do. But her story is great. There are a lot of people when they heard this interview on the radio show who truly loved it. Holly enjoyed doing it and has been in touch since. And she's got some stuff that she's working on. And uh, I think she's She's part of a few different projects that are going on, which we'll learn a little bit more about in the interview, and I'm sure sometime down the line going forward. So with that, and you know how I love talking to the business and talking behind the scenes in music as well, with that, we will have this week's podcast guest, Holly Knight, the accomplished songwriter, and you will certainly know when you hear this interview some of the songs that Holly wrote or co-wrote and get some of the stories behind them. I think you're going to enjoy the hell out of it. I hope you do on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. It's coming up next. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey, everybody. As always, a huge thanks for listening to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. I'd like to ask a small, really important favor of all you guys, though, and I promise it'll only take a few minutes And if you're one of the first people to do it, Podcast One will make it worth your time. Literally, we need you to complete a short survey. I know what you're saying. Oh, more customer service feedback stuff, more surveys. I'm over it. But hey, it's me. Come on, help me out. Because the information you give us can help make things better for the show and you as a listener. 
All you got to do is go to podcastone.com slash survey. Everything will be right there for you. Podcastone.com slash survey. First 250 people who complete the survey, you'll get a $10 gift card to amazon.com. And two grand prize winners will be selected at random to get a $100 Amazon gift card. How about that? Free money. Win-win. Our shows are supported by advertisers. That's why they're free. So filling this out will really help us cater to the needs of you as a listener. So what you hear me talking about is more of interest to you. So please go to podcastone.com slash survey, answer a few questions, potentially make some money along the way. And thank you for listening to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Eddie Trunk back with you. Thanks for checking out the Eddie Trunk Podcast. I set it all up, so let's get right to it. From my Sirius XM volume show, Trunk Nation, this one took place in the L.A. studios. Here is songwriter Holly Knight, my guest this week. Enjoy. Holly Knight is here. Holly, thank you for the time. Thank you for coming in. And great to, like, officially meet you. I know you were at our Rainbow broadcast not too long ago, and uh, I said, we got to have you in. I'd love to talk to you about your songs, and here you are, so thank you. I'm honored to be here. I, I really am. I've watched your show for a long time. So. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Well, you came to the Rainbow with Don Dawkin, and right. that's how I met I met you through Don very briefly at that uh, Rainbow. How do you know Don? Have you written with Don or done anything with Don, or are you just friends? Um, we dated briefly, actually, in the 80s, and then we kind of lost touch. I think maybe we jammed or something in, during that time, but we never really worked together. Um, and then we got back in touch because I did an interview with someone else where they had just interviewed him, and I said, well, just tell him I said hi, and then he got back to me. And so there's like a 20-year break there. Oh, wow. So that was a reconnect for that you with Don because you hadn't seen him for a long time. Yeah. And then he drags you to the rainbow <laughs> with all the rock animals that come out there. What? And we, we had Jan for a brief second to say hello. I said hello to you real briefly there. But when he told me, he said, yeah, I'm bringing Holly Knight with me. I said, I, I got to talk to her. He goes, yeah, you should interview her. And that's <laughs> how we connected. And I, I appreciate you being here. Now, how long have you lived in L.A.? Because we were talking off the air. You're a New Yorker. Um. Well, this time around, I've lived here 21 years. Uh, before that, in the 80s, when I was in the band Spider, and we did our first two records in L.A., that was the first time I'd ever been to L.A., and I loved it so much that eventually I left the band and I moved to L.A., and that's really when I started my career as a songwriter. Mm. Um, and I was here in L.A. for 15 years, and then... I don't know. I kind of missed the East Coast, and I thought I'm, you know, I was getting really sentimental and nostalgic, thinking I miss the weather and my family's there, and I'm such a New Yorker, and I love LA, but maybe it's time to move back. And I went back there and hated it. <laughs> I mean, I lived in the country. I lived in Connecticut. I thought, well, I'll live outside an hour, and everybody will want to come and write with me. But come on, you know, if you're in New York and you live on the West Side in the 70s you're not even going to go down to the village let alone an hour outside to Connecticut so I was very isolated and I went back to LA one day and I just saw the all these little kids sitting outside having lunch in their shorts in the middle of winter and I was like why did I leave here <laughs> like what the hell so I um I moved back yeah so total is like 37 years with a acid test break in the middle there <laughs> just but, to make sure you had the right plan <laughs> but you know the thing is i i love being in california and it's just it's, it's i love living here i love my home and everything but i will always have the new york dna 
you know? Yeah. And people know it the minute they meet me. I mean, I don't know if it's the first hint is I'm in all black. Am I in black today? Yeah, yeah, yeah you are. Always in black. And just, you know, it's an attitude. If you're from New York, you know, you have a potty mouth. and Yeah, yeah. It's definitely a different, a different tone. I mean, I don't pick up on it so much talking to you because I'm a... I mean, even though I'm from New Jersey, I'm you know, 30 minutes, 30 miles from New York. So I grew up in New York City, going right. to New York City. So I, when I meet other people from New York and or the New York area, they're just they're just people like me. So I don't look at it like, oh, right. Holly's a New Yorker. But I could see how now when you say that, somebody who's from L.A. Could uh-huh. lose, you know, she's she's a little she's she's definitely a little little edgier, a little New York. Yeah, there. yeah, which is cool. And you still have yeah. family there, huh? I do. Yeah, I do. So yeah. you get back quite a bit. I do. And I'm also I'm working on a couple of rock musicals that, you know, take me there. Oh, okay. Some yeah. Broadway stuff, maybe. Uh-huh. Or? Well, actually, there's three. Two are original ones. One is um, something I'm involved with, which is the Tina Turner musical, that's uh, been running in London at the West End for about a year. Oh, wow! And it's coming to Broadway on November seventh, and uh, and I have like a bunch of songs in that. I have three songs in that, and I'm also an investor. In the Tina Turner production. Yes. Okay. yes, and it's already selling tickets. They're already on sale if anybody wants to go because um, they're selling, which right. is great. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm doing another musical, which is an original story with all my hits in it. Um, although there's a lot of new material, too. So it's it's not quite what they call a jukebox or a catalog musical, um, like Beautiful or Jersey Boys. It has some new stuff in it. And I also wrote the script, so I'm doing that. Is it kind of your story when you um, say about well, your let me, let me put it this way. It's a, an original story. It's not a Holly Night story, but it's based on life, and a lot of it is factual. Okay. But that's where the two kind of go off into two different directions. Right. Wow. Sounds like some cool stuff. Well, we'll get more into this. Anybody that knows me knows that I am immensely fascinated at the songwriting process. Being somebody that has absolutely zero musical talent, Holly, I am always immensely fascinated at people's ability to write and create out of thin air songs that endure and have become hits for so many people. And you, looking down your resume and your discography, have done that countless times. So before we get into some specifics, because I wanted to talk about some of the specific songs that everyone knows or that I personally love that you've had a hand in, um, you mentioned you were in a band called Spider, which, if I'm not mistaken, Anton Fig was in that, right? Correct. I know Anton. I've known him for decades. A great guy. So. That was that your first musical thing that you got you put together because Anton is is not from the U.S. So how did he even come into it? Well, he's, he's South African, right? Yeah, there were three South Africans in that band, and they were uh, the guitarist Keith Linton and him were buddies in Cape Town, and the lead singer was also South African, who was a female, Amanda Amanda Blue, mm-hmm. and they came over and uh, Keith ended up marrying the singer Amanda, and they both went to college. So one went to Boston University and the other one went to Berkeley. And I'm not sure which is which. Uh, you'd have to ask Anton or Keith. But um, they, at that point, they wanted to form a band, but they were also playing with other people. They were sort of playing with this guy, Robert Gordon, who was like a 50s rockabilly artist. And then Link Ray, who I don't know if you know. Sure. Of course you do. Right? Yeah, yeah. What a stupid thing to say. Um, <laughs> Rumble, 
So they were doing a lot of touring with them. And I met them at a, at this club called Tracks, which was a really cool cu- club in the early 80s in New York City. And it was underground. So you would go downstairs and there were no windows. But every time someone would play some big venue like Madison Square Garden or, you know, the whatever the Palladium after their gigs they would come over to this club and they would party like all night so it became this sort of legendary little place that so many rock stars were going in and out of the place and um, that's where I met them and they called me up I think the next day Keith called me up and it was like 11 30 or 12 at night and said do you want to come over and jam with us because he knew I was a keyboard player that was my main thing at that point I wasn't even a songwriter in my head I was just I'd been playing since I was four and you were playing keys, were you playing on the New York circuit prior to the spider folks no. approaching you? No, I was so really just, young. I was like 18. So I they just when met I was 15 you and, and yeah. you kind of hit it off and then turns out you played and, right. hey, why don't you come and join this band? Exactly. So they called me up at midnight. Keith called me up and he said, do you want to come over and jam? And I said, yeah, that would be great. Like, what day do you want me to come over? He says, I want you to come over now. And I was like, uh, okay, <laughs> you know. And so he came over in a van or something, actually. He remembers this. I don't remember this, but we've talked about it. And I went over to their loft and we jammed and then they asked me to join the group. So I did. And then we were looking for a bass player. And I knew this uh, guy who was in a local band that I suggested. And he came over and auditioned and he got in the band. And it was interesting because he, um, you know, he's Afro-American and like we didn't even think about it. But at the time with the three South Africans and then having a black bass player, we kept getting asked questions in interviews because of the whole apartheid thing, you know. Right. But we just loved him because he was so funky and we wanted that element, you know. So so that was where you you were, you know, in a band and, of course, like any band, trying to make it and Mm -hmm. trying to get traction and correct me if I'm wrong, but Spider didn't quite make it, right? You guys didn't have any real success, did you? <laughs> well, actually, was there a hit, actually, was there a hit song? Yeah, or we had a top was? forty, and um, we had a hit, and we were gonna do. We were we did a second record, and that record, our first single was this song, "Better Be Good to Me," which ended up getting cut by um, by Tina Turner on her Private Dancer record. It was her second single, really. But the fun, <laughs> I have to say this. Um, they'll hate me for saying this, but. Um, I left the band after the second record. And so when I left the band, they got signed and changed the name to Shanghai, and that's when they fell apart. They fell apart because I left. So is basically what I'm saying. So Spider was, so you guys sold some records and actually had a hit. What was yeah. the top 40 hit called? It was called New Romance. And I remember hearing it on WNEW on the radio and, and just that feeling the first time of hearing yourself on the radio. And I was, it was so exciting. Are you singing? No, there's. A, I'm singing the backgrounds, but Amanda Blue was the lead singer. And did you co-write that? Were you writing yet? I co-wrote, well, I apparently was writing at that point, but I co-wrote that with Anton. Wow. The only song I ever wrote with Anton, I think. Wow. Um, so yeah. that, so that, so then you leave the band and then like. Well, let me add a little other, little sparkle here. That yeah. You'll appreciate this. So we were looking for a manager and we became the house band of tracks. So like one night Mick Jagger would be in the audience and another night there would be Bowie or something. It was just a really cool little, little vibe. And Bill Coyne came down to see us. Bill Coyne, obviously, you know. Legendary uh, manager right. of Kiss. And, right. Yeah. He wasn't managing Billy yet, um, which is a whole nother thing because um, I was uh, I was actually very instrumental in in finding Steve Stevens for him. Really? Was, yeah, when he was looking for a guitarist, and I had gone to see um, 
this local band called the Fine Malibus, and Steve Stevens was the guitarist in it. And so when Billy came to town, he was thinking about going with, um, you know, the the same management, Bill O'Coin. We befriended each other, and I used to take him around New York because he didn't really know anybody. And it was a really innocent, nice friendship that we had, you know. Neither one of us had made it at that point. We were just, you know, struggling artists. I mean, he'd done Generation X, so he'd done a lot more than right. me. But, um, yeah, I told him about Steve Stevens. But anyway, so Bill Coin became our manager. And as an odd twist, having nothing to do with 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 um Bill Coin. Actually, you know, I'm I'm getting old enough, I'm getting my facts wrong, but what happened was they were interested in getting a producer. We wanted to get a record deal. We were writing our own material. And Eddie Kramer was interested in us, another South African. So they had that thing in common. In the meantime, I had a friend who had been working with this producer Mike Chapman who had done he was having number ones everywhere with mm. the knack and Blondie and Nick Sweet. Gilder Sweet yeah. he did that whole glam rock thing with you know Mickey Most and Mud and I really wanted to work with him because he was a songwriter as well he wasn't just like I mean not to take away from Eddie because he's brilliant but you know he's more of an engineer type producer right. whereas you know Mike was a songwriter and had been writing hits, not just producing, but writing. So I wanted him to produce us, you know. Um, but because of Eddie Kramer, Anton met uh, Ace Freely because Ace Freely was doing a solo record. Remember when Kiss was doing the... the 78 all- solo record, yeah. sure, yeah. So he played on Ace's record. Right. Ace fell in love with him and told Kiss about him, and then Kiss started using him on their records as, you know, ghosting as a drummer when uh you know peter chris wasn't doing so well at that point right in fact they asked him to join the band just after we got our record deal and i have to really give him a lot of love and credit because he stuck stuck with us he could have joined kiss you know mm, yeah anton's on dynasty all of what all everything but one track so and am all I, of by Unmasked. the way you're on Dynasty? I play every keyboard on that. Yeah. I was Really? At, well, let me tell you that story. Wow, I was, I told that's you, I a have, revelation. I have so many stories. So you're an uncredited musician on Kiss Dynasty? Well, everybody is. <laughs> but you know what? I still have... Listen to this, because I'm such a New York Jew. When they paid me, I Xeroxed the check as proof, and I still have it. Really? I have a Xerox copy of the check. Can you say how much they paid you? Yeah, I mean, it, to me, it was a massive amount at the time. I think it was like five grand, and it was like I felt rich, you know, because I, you know. So they, so they brought you in, and you played. Well, let me tell you how it happened. I was sitting at the record plant. I happened to be dating a guy from Montclair, New Jersey. We were talking about that before. Yeah. He had been the engineer and all the Mike Chapman stuff, and I happened to just be sitting there. And Gene Simmons walked out of the studio, and he said, "Holly, he goes, you play keyboards, right?" And I looked up and I said, "Yes." He goes. Do you want to come in and play on a track? I was like, sure. <laughs> I was like, I'd never been on a record before. So I was like, yeah, I'd love to. So I went in there and I think it was, I was made for loving you was the song I played on. And I thought I was just getting sound. So I was playing and stuff. And, and then I thought we were going to do it for real. And then I saw them concurring with each other in the corner and shaking their heads. And I thought, okay, I sucked. And they're not going to use it. And then they came over. And I think it was Paul said to me or Gene said to me, um, we need keyboards on the whole record. Do you want to just stick around and just play on whatever we need? And I was like, okay, great. So, yeah, that was my first record plaque I ever got. And it's sitting in my studio. It's the Kiss Unmasked. Uh, unmasked or no, Dynasty? I mean, no, 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 uh, the one that... I Was Made for Loving You is on Dynasty. 
Okay, Dynasty. I but there's a lot of keyboards on Unmasked. No, Did you play them? Wait a minute. Kiss Unmasked was the one with like the, the cartoon. Strip. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. That's the one. Yeah, yeah, because the there's one. a ton of keys on that. Way yeah. more than Unmasked. That's me. Wow. That's, so that would have been 1980, <laughs> mm-hmm. and Anton played all the drums on that record. That's right. Because Peter was actually out of the band at that point, and they just didn't want to say it. So it was one yeah. of those deals. Wow, that's interesting. So, okay, so... Because there's so much I want to talk to you about, and, and we could go down these rabbit holes forever, and then I won't even be able to ask you about some of your songs. But I guess this – so you're a musician. You you have some, fair to say, modest success, I guess, with this band Spider, but you end up leaving it. Right. But there's there's a – was there a decision that was made, like, here's your – you're a musician, you're a member of a band, you're going for it. But then was there a point where you – because you said you were just a player at one point, right. you weren't really a songwriter. But where's the transition point where you say, you know what, I'm not going to be so worried about being the performer, the people everybody sees, the the person out there chasing it. I'm gonna, I'm actually fine with being a creator behind the scenes and watching my music go to or songs go to other people and what happens to it. That that I imagine is a very pivotal point when yes. you make that call. Where was that for you? Well, let's just say when I joined the band, everybody was writing new songs. So we were all trying it and some of their stuff kind of sucked. So I thought, well, I can't be any worse, you know, so I just thought I would try it. And then what happened was when we did the records, well, first of all, let me say Bill Coyne wanted to do this agreement where we had a partnership with no matter who wrote the song, everybody split it equally because he did that with Kiss and I guess a lot of people did that. But the problem was, and he did that so that there would be no problems and no arguments drama. and no egos and drama. You know how bands are. But that didn't eliminate the, the competitiveness at all. In fact, it was like, you know, the fact that your name's going on a song and whose name is going for first and it just got really annoying and petty. So when we turned the songs in for the records, we wouldn't tell them who wrote what. And they would always pick my songs as the singles. And mm. then the band would just sort of be angry at me instead of being excited, you know. So then when the second record came, and I wanted Mike Chapman to produce us, it, it turned out that we signed to his record label, Dreamland Records, but he never produced us. This other person, Peter Coleman, who did the first Benatar record, who was an engineer that he worked with, did us, because Mike had too many commitments at the time. Mm-hmm. So... I was kind of crafty. I went to him on the second record and I asked him if he would write a song with me for the record that we were doing. And I figured if I could get him to co-write with me, Mm. then I could pull him in to produce that track. And that's exactly what happened. And we went in a different direction than Spider. We went in a direction that was really cool. And had I stayed in the band, we stayed together, we probably would have made it. But there were a lot of political things Mm. that were going on at the time of our record releases. And that's really one of the reasons why we didn't make it. I don't know if you remember that whole period back in the 80s with the payola and the record business fell apart. And anybody that put out a record during that time period was really fucked because, you know, we got thrown to the wayside. We were were one of those bands, you know. But so we wrote Better Be Good to Me. That was the song we wrote. And Spider recorded it. And like six months later, uh, Tina recorded it for the Private Dancer record. And And how does she get a hold of it? Well, because I was signed to Mike Chapman. We were all signed to Mike Chapman as a publisher, and someone sent it to her. And it was in an A&R meeting where the urban legend is that she jumped up from the table and said, I have to I have to get this song because it really spoke to what she was going through at the time. She had literally just run across the freeway to get away from Ike, Tur- you know, Ike Turner. Right. So she really 
she liked the empowering feel of the song. And so then I kind of had a fight. I almost had a fist fight with the singer. There was a lot of drama going on with that band. Um, needless to say, after I left the band, the guitarist did divorce the singer. The drummer, Anta, ended up with her. So this is his best friend, right? He married her. They had a kid. Sounds very Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> it's worse. They had a kid. So this lead singer had a kid with the with the guitarist and the drummer. And then they both got fed up with her. And so Anton divorced her. Now he's happily married to someone else. And um, Keith and Anton are still best friends, but they don't really talk to her, you know? Uh, plus, Anton was my boyfriend. That complicated it even more. Like oh the first gosh. two and a half years, we all lived together in this loft in downtown, downtown, like Soho before it was hip. It was really gritty back then, you know. It was like a five-flight walk up with no elevators. And let me tell you, when you're doing gigs and you're getting home at 4.30 in the morning and there's no elevator and you have to haul a, a oh, Hammond B3 up the steps. I imagine that walk, yeah. No, uh, we let go of it one day. We got to the top <laughs> of the steps. Everybody was so tired that we just let go. And my Hammond B3 went down. There's no landings. It was like five flights straight down because it was an industrial building. And my Hammond B3 was like a sled that just completely fell apart at the bottom of the steps. And I remember we were so tired. We just kind of looked at it. No one said anything. And we just turned around and went to bed. So Better Be Good to Me, was that the pivotal song? Because here's a song that you wrote or co-wrote and recorded with another band. Then out of Then Tina Turner has a huge hit with it. No, I actually left the band before I even knew she was cutting it. Okay. I had a fight with, you know, the lead singer, and we were on the road, and I said, you know, I'm going to finish the tour, but I'm tired of this pettiness. Um, you know, we're all great friends now. I'm like right. Anton and Keith, they're my two they're buddies of mine. Not so much the singer, but um, I went to Mike Chapman, and I thought he was going to be pissed because they put all this money into us, and I said, listen, I really want to leave the band, and I wanted to know if you're okay with that because, you know, we have our relationship. And he said, no, move out. Move out to California. I'll sign you new to a new publishing deal. All the records that I'm producing, I'm going to need songs for them, so you have a pipeline to that. We can write, too. I can put you together with other writers. And he was in that way. He was a really great publisher, so I got together with Nick Gilder. But anyway, going back a little bit, the Tina Turner single came out after I'd moved to California and already left the band. And that, so when you, your, your question 10 minutes ago or whatever, of that what the pivotal, the that was the pivotal, right? that was the pivotal moment. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to, maybe one day I'll record again, which I did. I had another band called Device. But I just really decided, yeah, I'm going to write. You know, there's just something very elegant and cool about being a writer. We're kind of like the underdogs and kind of the royalty within the community of if someone's a great writer, you can command a lot of respect. But we are definitely behind the music. A lot of people don't know, you know, they think that the artist wrote right, the song. Right, right. And I, I, that's what I've said all along. And I've always said that. I'm, I, I, I have, I mean, you can throw a stone in Nashville, L.A., New York, wherever, and hit a great musician. There's so many people who are great musicians and I'm not diminishing that ability that I, that's amazing. But to find people who can create and write great songs, that to me is the talent that I personally, as a music fan, am most in awe of. So I love talking to people like yourself and others that maybe not household names to the general public, but are behind so many songs that they would have heard or known and uh, I think it's, you know, it's just an incredible accomplishment. So with that, with that, I want to take a break. So we stay on schedule this hour. We'll come back and I want to go through. So, so better be good to me. Tina Turner, you moved to LA, you got a song. 
Now Holly Knight, the songwriter, starts to happen. And we're not going to have time to go through all of them. This being a show more focused on the rockier side of things, mm-hmm. I want to talk about some of that stuff. But I will say this. We can't leave this off for Tina Turner because you, uh, I don't know if you, it's a writing, wrote or co-wrote, um, Sim- is it simply the best is the title of the song? Well, it's actually called The Best. The Best, which is... It, everybody knows it is simply Everybody the best. knows that song. Yeah. And that is... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because we're going to run down some other stuff, but would that be one of your biggest, like in terms of just a song that just keeps giving? Because w- that's that's heard constantly in a variety of different ways. Yeah, it's... it's You know, I had to... Uh, I, I sold a piece of my catalog years ago, and... In putting everything together, it, it you know it sort of came to light that eighty percent of my catalog was the best, the value. <laughs> and did you co-write that with someone? Or I co-wrote that with Mike Chapman. With Mike Chapman. Yeah. Wow, that is amazing. And that I imagine. And I, by the way, I have a lot of metal bands and a lot of hardcore stuff that I've written too. I mean, I've written like you know. Otep. You have Otep, Otep on. I your... love Otep. She loves me too. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I... So we'll we'll get into some of that, and but kiss, you know. We, oh, we're going to get there, but I'm amazed at like Bon Jovi. Yeah, no, I'm, <laughs> we're going to get there, but I I can't like to have have been a co-writer on the best, and I imagine so. You, I'm sure you have a relationship with Tina Turner, right? Like, you, are you guys? Do you guys know each other? Well, or? you know what? She's cut more songs of mine than anybody. She's right. cut ten songs of mine, and if anybody has a relationship with her. I guess I could say I do, but that being said, you know, she's, she's, how do I put this? She's a star, and I don't even mean this in a bad way. She's a diva. I mean that in a, in a good way. Right. But there are times where the walls come down and you can get really close. I mean, I've been in a dressing room and seen her with her clothes on, and at the same time, there's a wall that I felt with, you know, all the artists that I've, um, the big stars I've worked with, there's, they they get really like they can be really magnanimous and friendly and close, or they can be really distant and you can't get close to them. You know, so it really depends on any given Do day. Do you think some of them? And I know I got to get to this break. There's so much I love to talk to you about. I'll come Do, back. Uh, we we need to. Do you think some of them? And you don't have to name names, but do you think that some of them? Because uh, most. I'm a geek, okay? I live for this stuff, and I read every credit. I read who mastered records. I read who mixed them. That's why I still love getting stuff physically. You handed me some CDs, which I appreciate. Still my favorite way to get music, but I love reading credits and seeing who wrote the songs and all that, right? Do you think some of these artists who you've written songs for almost maybe keep you at arm's distance because they don't want beyond having to pay you and credit you on the song, they don't want people to know they didn't write some of their biggest songs. They want the public, because a lot of public just assumes that the songs were written by the people singing them. Well, you know, it used to be that they had to put, when we had, you know, even CDs, and even further back when we had vinyl records, they would always put that stuff, and I'm as much a geek as you. I miss that stuff. I used to look at who thank, who they thanked. Oh, yeah, I still do. Who the girls' names were on the, the credits, like, are you dating this person? Oh, or, yeah. You know, all this stuff that goes through your mind. And um, then I remember when I, I, I wrote a song called Pleasure and Pain for Divinals, and they didn't put my name anywhere on the CD or outside, and I thought... You know, did they want people to think they wrote that song? I mean, I, what the fuck? I, it, it was really kind of upsetting to me. But um, 
I think that but back to your your question about is that why they keep a distance? No, I think that's just who they are. They get bombarded with so many right. people, and you know they get to the point where they just build a wall around themselves that no one can really penetrate. Yeah. Know? All right, we'll be back with more with Holly Knight. I want to get into some specific songs, and like Holly mentioned, there is there are some great uh, rock songs on her resume, and I want to get a few. Uh, words from her about uh, a couple key ones as we go through that. And we're going to do that right after this as we continue talking songwriting and talking about some of the great, great songs that uh, Holly Knight wrote or co-wrote. We'll do that right after this. This This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. All right, back with Holly Knight, and we'll, we'll, we should. We were talking about this a little bit a second ago off the air, so I'll let Holly say what she can about it on the air because it's one that jumps right out that I want to talk about, and I know that my audience, uh, so many Kiss fans in the audience, will love this as well. You've got a few co-writes with Kiss, including a song I think is a very underrated song that should have been a huge sort of anthem, but that's another story. But there's a fascinating song in the Kiss sort of archive called Hide Your Heart that you are a co-writer on along with Paul Stanley and Desmond Child. Mm-hmm. And the fascinating thing about this song is not only was it a single and video for Kiss from the Hot in the Shade record, it was also covered by Ace Frehley, who at the time and you know is still a former member of the band. And right, right around the same time, which I told you off the air, I actually had a hand in the reason why that happened, because I was Ace's A&R guy. But then the song was also covered by a couple other artists. I think Molly Hatchett did it. Was it Robin Beck, a Canadian artist? I think she did a version of it. Mm -hmm. So like four people took swings with this song and it didn't, you know, it's it's a well-known song, but it didn't become the massive hit I thought it would be. But what are the origins of that song from your perspective as a co-writer of it and, uh, you know, how it ended up coming to be? Um, well, originally I got together with Paul Stanley and basically sung him the da 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 hey 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 do 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 do, which is not only the hook but is the chorus melody and everything. And um, now, had you known him? You said you played on the Kiss album Unmasked. Did you have a? Did you stay in touch with him through all that time, or was it just a random reconnect? Well, you know, this is funny. This I want to sound like a slut here, but I used to date him too. Oh, okay. It no. seems like everybody we're talking about I dated. <laughs> no, I've been married not... three times and divorced too. So you know, just love is no a judgment here whatsoever. <laughs> hey, I was a great wife. I was a great wife. They were just lousy husbands. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, so, but anyway, so we were dating on and off for a few years. And um, I think what happened was when I first was dating him, I was in Spider. And then I lost touch. And then I started to have a lot of success and ran into him a couple of years later. And that's when he said to me, you know, we should write. You know, because at mm-hmm. this point I had sort of proven my mettle a little bit. Mm-hmm. Excuse the pun. But <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um. Yeah. And so that, is that the first thing you wrote with Yeah, him? and then he took the tape, and again, apparently he had a writing session with Desmond. and Desmond they Child? Wrote, yeah. Who Desmond, I mean, talk about six degrees of separation. Desmond and I knew because Desmond used to be in his own little sort of vocal group called Rouge. Desmond Child and Rouge, yeah. and they used to open up for Spider all the time oh, at wow. tracks. Wow. So that's how I first met him. Wow. And I'm talking to Desmond's PR person now about him. I want to talk to him about writing, too, with the yeah. stories I'm and sure he would have. would yeah. be crazy. Yeah. Sure. Um, so 
they wrote this song around that hook and stuff. And um, yeah, then uh, they Paul sent me this <laughs> tape and asked me if I. He said, "Just listen to the tape and um, tell me if you think you should get credit or not." So, you know, of course, if I hadn't done anything, I would have said, "Nope, don't need credit." But I listened to it and I wrote him back and I said. Uh, um, no, I called him back because we didn't write back. Back then, we didn't have the internet right. or emails. I'm thinking right. like in today's, you know, um, today's world. I just said, yeah, I think I should get credit, you think? You know, <laughs> I was kind of pissed at him. But um, not pissed, but just sort of like it's fairly obvious. Offended that it would be a question. Yeah, because at this point, I had already been writing for, you know, and having some success. And it was like a silly question. And then you came back around, and you were saying of the versions of the song, the four recorded versions mm-hmm. of the song, your favorite version is Aces. Absolutely. Uh, because you just feel it captured the vibe of the song? or Yeah, well, also I like, I actually, because maybe because he's not considered a singer, I kind of like it because there's right. like, there's sort of attitude in there instead of trying to do this great vocal. And as a result, I tried to get it in a couple of movies. I was in touch with him and was trying to get in in some movies because they were looking for sort of a rock track. And it's just, I like it because it's kind of scruffy. Yeah, you know? it's very street. Yeah, it's very street. Yeah. Now you, uh, not to hyper-focus on the Kiss stuff because there's so yeah. many other things I want to hit you with, but I found it interesting that on what was billed as a reunion record, which turned out in retrospect not to really be because they didn't play on it too much, but the Psycho <laughs> Circus record, you had two co-writes on. Yeah. So did was that... Was there were those songs that had already existed, or were those specifically written for that record? They were specifically written for that record. So mm-hmm. you reconnected with Paul again, and, yeah. and came back in, and won a song called "I Pledge Allegiance to the State, State of, of Rock, Rock and, Roll. and Roll," very Kiss sort of anthemy thing, yeah. and a, a song that I thought should have been a big anthem sports celebratory sort of vibe a song called uh, raise your glasses which when yeah. i heard that record the first time I'm like that should really be a big anthemic sort of song it could have been a huge nothing hit happened it wasn't even a Kiss. single yeah i know it's ridiculous and um yeah i i completely agree with you. it should have been on some like budweiser commercial yeah. or something still and, should be yeah. and then pink came out with that song where the hook was like uh, raise your glasses yes. and I remember thinking that I'm going damn you see someone cashed in on that that concept of you know celebratory let's all drink yeah, drink yeah exactly <laughs> um love is a battlefield huge huge song to this day for Pat Benatar mm-hmm. and and you've you've written some stuff uh for Pat uh, I don't know. I don't think she's ever written with you, right? She doesn't no, really write. So no. much of the stuff was with was it with you and Mike Chapman, or how did? Well, what was the Love writing? is a Battlefield happened because I was at his house when I first moved to California. I went over to his house, and the very first day that we were there to write, he got this phone call from Pat saying she was doing a live record and she really needed a hit song to, you know, promote the record and help sell it. And she knew him because he had worked with her on the first record on quite a lot of the tracks. You know, she did a cover of the sweet song, No You Don't, mm-hmm. and a bunch of other stuff. And um, so he said, well, I've got this writer I signed. Her name's Holly Knight, and she was in the group Spider, and we were going to write today, so we're going to write ahead for you. That's, he was so smug about it, you know. It's like, okay. So he hung up. I didn't know he was talking to Benatar. So I said, who was that? He said, Pat Benatar. And I thought, I did the right thing moving to California. And it's <laughs> like, here I am, first day. So we pretty much wrote the song the first day, and... The chords came from me, and then Mike said, you know, it's such a catchy, 
catchy sound, and it was different. Uh, uh, the speed was actually half half the speed. So I know Neil goes around saying oh, it was originally a ballad. It wasn't a ballad at all. It was a mid-tempo, eighth-note kind of feel, and they sped it up and made it like, uh, you know, all the bells and whistles and synths and all that, you know. But we... He was saying, you know, this is so catchy. We need a title, but it's got to be sick. That's that's what's going to make a commercial. If we write a, a title that's not normal, like something stupid, you know, like Love is a Battlefield or something. And I just looked at him and I said, that's a great title. Mm. So we wrote the whole song that day, but for one line. And it wasn't that we had writer's block. We wrote like 100 lines in the next week. And we finally came up with the last line, which was no promises, no demands on the chorus what what did you think when you saw the video for love is a battlefield because it was all (laughs) over mtv you know the 80s was a time when everything in a very charming way was completely fucking random like you'd have (laughs) cows walking through the set i mean obsession i wrote that song obsession and they had like huge song and emotion romans and togas handing out hors d'oeuvres to party goers (laughs) i mean just everything was always random and for some reason, a lot of my songs, when I would see the videos, I'd be like, really? Like, what? <laughs> you know, like The Warrior. I've had a conversation with Patti Smythe, and we both hate that video. Sorry, I took my mouth no, up. that's okay. We were like, why did they dress you up like a kabuki? <laughs> like, it was just retarded, you know? And, and that video is... But here's the thing. It's iconic now. It's so classic. Know. You know, those shoulder shimmy things she does. And the guy that was the choreographer was the pimp in the video with the diamond in his tooth. And it was incredibly stupid. But in a way, that's what made it iconic. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So, well, we It wasn't should... cool. That's for sure. Yeah. We should touch on that for a second because as we jump around a little bit, Patti Smythe... A warrior, the warrior, uh, which you're a writer on, and a song, more of an album cut. But Patty Smythe, I I love her voice so much, yeah. and uh, a song from that record, "Hands Tied," mm-hmm. which you're also a co-writer on, is probably my favorite song on that whole record. That I is love that song. A Thank great you. Great song. Thank you. I and love it. I thought it should have been way bigger than it than it was. And it's really actually lyrically, it's quite dirty. Oh yeah. I didn't. I gotta listen. Well, go revisit because it a it's bit. about two people that are seeing each other, but they're in other relationships. Oh, okay. I thought it was maybe an S and M sort of thing, hands tied or something. I when you said dirty, no. I don't know where we were going, but well, um, it's it's a great great track. And I saw Patty a couple years ago show up. She, I was at a benefit that I was hosting, and she came walking in and sang two or three songs and walked out the door and still can belt it out. Oh, Vocally, yeah. I was amazed at how good she still sings. She yeah, was great. She, she inducted me into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, actually, in 2013, and she sung The Warrior then. <laughs> it was, like, amazing. Yeah, and uh, and she she's, uh, she's still, it's, I mean, I was watching, I was like, wow, I mean, she sounds like, it's 88 or whatever it was. It was really incredible. Speaking of great singers, you've written some stuff uh, for Heart. Yes. Including a huge song, Never. Yes. Which, uh, speaking of Ron Nevison, that was Ron producing that and the whole sort of comeback and the reintroduction of Heart and mm-hmm. the 80s-ization, if you will, of, mm-hmm. of Heart at that time. Yeah. How did you get involved there? Um, Trudy Green, who's, you know, she's a manager for a lot of artists. She was, at the time, she was at HK Management. Mm-hmm. And she called me up and said, I'd really like you to work with the girls from Heart. Would you meet with them? So I said, yeah, of course. Um, And I went to SIR and went to their rehearsal. And um, 
Yeah, we hit it off. We, we, we It was like instant love with the girls, you know. But also, I want to say, you know, because basically I was kind of like an anomaly as a songwriter, not only as a songwriter, but as a female working with rock dudes. Because let's face it, most of rock has always been a man cave. You know, mm-hmm. that's why I call your show, your other show, I call it the man cave. Because, oh, that metal show. Yeah. Yeah. Because. Well, we had heart on there. We had some women. I know, on but there. there were so many, there were so few of us, yeah. if you think about it. And there still are, which it really pisses me off. It pisses me off that it's like women can rock and, you know, we're probably more ch- perverse than guys, actually. <laughs> I see it changing, though. Do you not? I mean, even. No. You don't, because even with when I go out there, because and, it's not, rock's not selling on the radio. That's right. the problem. I mean, yes, we have people like Lizzie Hell in and, this moment, and, Maria and o, Brink, yeah, and the, Otep, and there's like Nita Strauss. Skillet, has yeah, a lot of few, but it's just like it's kind of in the foray. It's not like at least in the '80s, rock was the thing that was getting on the radio, and now it's not. So you have to fight against that, you know. Yeah, but I think it's a little more of a blanket issue of uh, across the board with just rock. Unfortunately, right now. Now, and I hope that that's that what all, I'm saying. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's not just women. It's everybody. So if they're going to play anybody, it's usually not them. You know? The other thing I think about women in music, which I find encouraging, is not only the people out front, but also when I go to shows, encouraging in terms of evolving and, and, and changing is when, when I go to shows, I see a ton, a ton of women on crews now. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I did way more than you ever saw before. Normally it was, it's the wardrobe person or it's what. Right. Tour, all the girly stuff. Yeah. But yeah. tour managers and people just, you know. And engineers too. Engineers, I actually have a house, couple of engineers whatever. I call, like when I'm doing sessions, like I do all my programming on Pro Tools and I, I'm really good at doing vocal comps. I get hired to do that because I'm really, I'm a ninja at that, but I'm not good at getting sound. So when I need an engineer, I'll call someone or if I want something mixed, I just, handed to Chris Lord Algae or something. Mm. But there are some really great female engineers. There's not there's not a lot of female producers. And I went up against that a lot because I am a female producer. But, you know, getting, you know, the music business is still very male-oriented. And getting yeah. someone to write a check for you and believe in you as a woman doing what men do, it's it's been pretty screwed up. Let me go back to Heart for a second on that track because that period of time is interesting for Heart because it was a big comeback for them. I find it interesting that their management, Trudy at the time, reached out to you because Nevison, who produced that, one of the things he had to have the uh, sort of like come to Jesus moment, he said because I interviewed Ron about it, was to the to Anna and Nancy, hey, we need to bring in some writers. We need to get some songs here for you, regardless of you're writing them or not, if you want to make a comeback. Over the years, they seem to have had very conflicted feelings about that period of their career. They acknowledge it was a huge comeback for them, but the material was something they weren't always comfortable with singing because they didn't write it. It wasn't coming from them for the first time. Did you catch any of that at that time, or, or was it just a case of you wrote, you wrote or co-wrote this song and it got presented and they did it and you heard about it and it became a big hit. Never was a huge hit. Yeah. Um, I had a couple of songs on that record. Um, but the, you know, the thing is, um, I think it was a smart move for them. I see, let's face it. Like every band that you've ever heard, probably their best record is usually their first one. And that's because they had a lifetime to write it. 
Right. You know, and we've, we've heard this before, but it's true. It's like once you're on the road and your label's pushing you to tour and your manager's pushing you to do, you know, interviews and all these things, you have very little time. And then you have a window of like two weeks or a month before you go back on the road where you have to write music. And so everybody's scrambling and they're trying to make it as good. You know, they're trying to live up to the success of the first one, if that's what it was, or maybe it was the second or third. But they just... As they get older and they're touring, they just sort of run out of mojo. So I don't think it's a bad thing to have other people come in. But the this, the thing for me was always to try and write something that sounded like the band wrote it, you know, um, most of the time. I wouldn't say that Never was one of those. Never was a little bit funkier than what they normally do. Was that written specifically with heart in mind yeah. or had you written it already and you thought that would be good for them? No, I, there was, I had a guitarist who was in my band device and we were like, screwing around with some ideas and we he came up with those uh, some of the chords and then I said do you can I can I bring in my guitarist because he has an idea I want to show you and they loved it so pretty much it was a, um Gene and I wrote the song and then they came in as what they call Connie I don't know why they did this but they would combine their two names into one name so that mm. it looked like it was one like three writers instead of four because between the two of them the amount of stuff that they would contribute i guess maybe they figured it's just like we'll be that one person hmm. you know i never really asked them about it but um so that one we wrote together then there were other songs i wrote a song called there's the girl that i co-wrote with nancy um we wrote another song called all eyes that was on that record mm-hmm. um and then i got together with this other writer albert hammond and i presented them with some finished songs and that was on the um um, live uh, something an- bad animals record. Okay, and so I wrote uh, "Tall Dark Handsome Stranger," which was kind of an homage to ZZ Top. If you listen to it, it's really badass vocal on M's part. Though. And "I Love You," we wrote a song called "I Love You" because I thought it's so simple. I mean, has anybody ever written a song called "I Love yeah, You"? Yeah, so yeah. we wrote a song called. It's probably about a hundred songs called "I Love You." <laughs> but... Um. I want to ask Holly Knight, we have like five minutes, and this is killing me because I hate to shortchange this because there's so much I want to talk about with Holly, and we have gotten into a lot of stuff, but we'll do this again, hopefully, as long as you're willing to do it again. I would love to. Good, good. Okay. Give me something on Aerosmith, one of my all-time favorite bands, Ragdoll. Huge song, huge video on MTV back in the day. Just saw them in Vegas. They still do it live. How did that one come about? That was through John Kolodner. John Kolodner had been involved in the Kiss record. Uh, sorry, the never. I'm getting confused now. The Heart record. He had sort of been A and Ring it, even though they weren't signed to his label. Yeah, I was going to say that wasn't his label. At the he time. used to freelance. Like if he, he sort of the, was the great defender of like bands that were huge and then started either they, you know, they lost their mojo or they became drug addicts like Aerosmith. Right. That they had hit like a wall. And he wanted to bring it back. He did it with Whitesnake. He he just didn't want those bands to be forgotten. And in that way, I really respected them because, you know, there was mm. honor in that. Right. So he told me that he had, he was working with Aerosmith and he had signed them and he had a song that was weird. He said, it's a weird song. I really like it, but I can't relate to it lyrically. And I want you to listen to it and, and tell me what you think. And I listened I, and I agreed with him. So I said, well, how does the band feel about it? Because I hate that idea of being forced on a band, like when they don't really want to write with other people. But they were in the same 
basically they were in a very similar position to Hart. Like they needed a hit. They had cleaned up their act. They stopped doing drugs. They got a new record deal. And this was make or break time. Right. Because the record before no one, it was over for them. Right. You know, I was a huge Aerosmith fan. I mean, I grew up in them and Queen and those were big influences. Todd Rundgren was a big influence of mine. And even Burt Bacharach, who's not rock and roll at all. Mm-hmm. You know, but I've kind of been able to tie all that stuff in that's why you know a lot of people have looked at my music and said you know i i love this song and i love this song and i didn't realize you wrote both and now i'm seeing the similarities you mm-hmm. know like you actually have a style when it's like been the soundtrack to my life you know so um going but i got a little uh, off to the side there but going back to aerosmith steven called me up and i think we talked every day on the phone for two weeks we got to know each other really well about everything and anything. And, you know, I said, How are you okay with me, you know, being involved in this? Do you feel it needs something? He goes, Yeah, I'm fine with it. So I was like, Okay, cool. So I worked on it and I didn't do a lot of work on it, mostly because I thought it was great, um, but it was missing the mark. It had the wrong titles called Ragtime and it, I didn't know what it was about, mm-hmm. you know? So I helped him rewrite the lyrics. He, I flew up to Vancouver. He picked me up at the airport, which was very charming. That would never happen now. Um, and we sat down and we, we hammered it out and then he went in the studio, the track was already cut and just landed the vocal. I mean, like almost in one take. So on that track, it was mostly lyric help that you did. Oh yeah. Yeah. The the music was there pretty much. Yeah. And to be honest, like I felt like I was the doctor being brought in to tighten a, a very large screw. And I don't normally like to do that, but I was, I was, would have done anything to work with them. Right. You know, I just really wanted to be a part of it. And so, um, I, I'm really very much a involved writer and I, a lot of times I just write, I start with music. So to just be working on lyrics was a different approach for me. And I didn't really like, that's not really like, uh, my favorite way to write songs. Right. But, you know, they had a hit with it. I've got 90 seconds. So I'm not even going to ask you about other songs that I want to ask you about. We'll save that for another time. But anything you want to get out and let people know that you're doing or promote before we have to wrap up? Well, I have a great website, which is just hollynight.com. K-N-I-G-H-T. Yeah. And um, just look out for the Tina Turner musical. Go buy some tickets. Um, And also just keep an eye out for my musical, which will probably be taking another two or three years because everything takes forever on Broadway. But... Um, for the moment, I'm calling it I Am the Warrior because oh, nice. it's, yeah, it's all about that warrior spirit and that whole concept. You know what? Screw all the cynics because if if ever, if everybody listened to someone when they said, you can't do this, you know, I never would have made it. So I wouldn't be sitting here because I was exactly. told that 36 years ago and right. I've been in radio ever since. So yeah. yeah, nothing drives me more than telling somebody telling me I can't do it. So yeah, and that, I think we have exactly. the same sort of spirit. Or that you're my, this, you're not this. And right. it's like, what do you mean I'm not this? You said I wasn't a songwriter until I became a songwriter. Now I'm not, now I'm a songwriter. I'm not a singer. I'm not an actor. It's like. I got to run. Holly, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Let's do it again soon. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed doing it, and hopefully we'll do more with Holly sometime down the line. Really enjoyed that conversation, and we just scratched the surface on the stories of some of the songs she's written and didn't even get to tell the whole story. Time just flew by in that interview uh, once we got into talking, and I really enjoyed that. So thanks to Holly Knight. Thanks to you guys for listening to the Eddie Trunk Podcast wherever you do around the world. And remember, all of the interviews you hear happened live on Trunk Nation, my daily radio show 
on Sirius XM volume channel 106. Hear me live 2 to 4 Eastern, replaying every night 10 to midnight Eastern, on demand anytime you want on the Sirius XM app. And don't forget, if you're listening to this on post day Thursday, which would be the 24th of October, you can catch me live tonight doing Trunk Nation from the patio of the Rainbow Bar and Grill with my guest Kim Thale of Soundgarden, and that'll be going down tonight, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific. You can hear it happen live on Volume Channel 106. Be sure to follow on Twitter at Eddie Trunk. Thanks to Katie Irizarry, the producer of the Eddie Trunk podcast. I'll see you guys next week for another all-new episode free, as always, Apple Podcasts and PodcastOne.com. 